ready to take a ride. Grab your coffee and strap yourself in. If you listen, I can hear God's plan. Because the show is about to begin. You're listening. You're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. All right. Short intro tonight. We're going to jump on in. Brother Gary, welcome to the Omega Man Radio broadcast, my friend. Well, thank you for inviting me to your show, and so happy to be here, and very much looking forward to the conversation today. I count this a real honor to have you. I have been uh, watching uh, over time some of these great interviews you've been doing uh, up on YouTube, and I said, man, I've got to get a hold of Brother Gary and try to snag him for the show, because uh, we've got some questions to ask, and... uh, what, he is the man to ask. So we'll get started tonight. Brother Gary, would you like to honor us tonight and open us up in prayer? Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to do what we're doing today, to be able to communicate with the people that are out in wherever they're listening from today. We ask that you bless not only um, the hosts and the audience and myself, that we may not only communicate and answer some questions, connect some dots, maybe open some eyes and that, but people will be able to take that information that's important or relevant and then communicate that to others. It's all about waking people up. It's all about educating people. It's all about creating a curiosity to dig deeper into the Bible. So we ask that you bless us in this endeavor, and we pray these things in the name of our Savior, the word Jesus, who sits at your right hand side and testifies to you for us, for all of the saints. We also pray in the name of the Holy Spirit, and in your great and holy name. Amen. I say amen to that. Now, folks, we have a live chat running here, so during the course of this program, if you have a question for Gary, type it in, and we'll see if we can get that to him for an answer. Um, again, welcome, Brother Gary, and folks out there, this is a live broadcast. Today is uh, Wednesday August 30th, 2023 for the archive, and we have with us uh, an author who did a massive work on the subject of Genesis 6, Nephilim and the Giants. Gary, I'm just looking at the Amazon page. Uh, The book that you released back in 2014, over 1,100 pages. What a massive undertaking this was. Yeah, it was. It was not something that came about um, quickly, and it, and I didn't intend to write a you know a large book. So I did a lot of research in the Bible, and particularly on prophecy, because there's a book when I was very young that I read that got my interest up so much I needed to verify it. I kind of classify classify myself as a Christian contrarian, and I wanted to verify what Hal Lindsey had said in the late Great Planet Earth and. So it's one thing to look up the passages, and it's another thing to say, is that accurate? Was Were the passages manipulated? So then I thought the only way I can do this is to fully research the Bible and document various prophecy, and I thought there's probably not a lot in there, and my eyes were opened on that. So it took me oh, probably about 15 years to satisfy myself on having most of the things logged into separate files, uh, because I started this uh, in the early 80s. And early on in the research, I I come across Genesis 6, and I have not come back to God at this point, and I'm not ready for what I'm about to read. 
And I read about these giants and I'm going, I don't know what that's all about, but that's not what I'm sort of here to do. That's not what I want to do. So I'm going to ignore that. But I found as I was doing the research and, and tracking all the different prophecy narratives that a, there was a connection seemingly to various parties within prehistory and within prophecy. And so I thought I needed to go back and redocument about these giants. And in case there's anything else that's related to them and the demons and fallen angels. And so I documented that. So after I'd done all of the research and thought I had an understanding of it, I thought, you know, maybe I could, you know, tell a story on this. Maybe I could write a book. And I thought I would write a short book. So I thought, you know, I don't even know whether I can get published. I don't know whether people will buy the book. I don't know whether or not people will uh, read the book or even like it. So, but I thought I would try. And so I decided I'd write a short book connecting giants in Genesis 6 to end time prophecy because you've got angels and demons and things like that and these great and mighty men of the end time. And so I, I, I wrote the first 10 chapters quickly and then I realized because I was also a history buff and a mythology buff that a lot of these stories in prehistory were identical that was recorded in other cultures all around the world and all continents except for Antarctica and who knows what we'll find down there someday. And they told the same story but from a polytheist lens. So I thought it would be interesting to show that sort of comparative that they're telling the same story just with a polytheist lens. And so then that led me into, well, there's a cultural aspect I need to educate people on if I'm going to talk about that and make the case, and that I needed to discuss the religions. Well, then I had to research various religions all around the world, from the Vedas to the Quran to the Gnostic Gospels and everything in between. And so after I did that, I realized that there's this complete connection uh, right into prehistory, right into the days before the flood with secret societies that were created through the mystery schools, that were created through the polytheist religion that came from this knowledge that was arrived at from a couple of sources before the flood. So then I had to go down that rabbit trail because I didn't know anything about secret societies and I was on that for like about eight or ten years. And so somewhere along the lines as I did that, I went from writing a short book to 98 chapters. Wow. So, um, and, <laughs> and um, you know, over, over 30 years of research to do the book. You remember that commercial from the 80s? There's a old woman goes to a Wendy's, or goes to a hamburger set place and says, where's the beef? Uh, folks, yeah. you will find beef in this book. Uh, I love the fact that it, it is uh, so extensive. That just shows this is not a cursory uh, look at a subject, but Gary has done the research. And uh, I would say this is the seminal book on out there on the subject of Genesis 6, the Giants, and the Nephilim. We're going to delve into some of it tonight and also talk about the next chapter. Uh, Gary, is it true that you have been sequestered for a month or more working on a follow-up to the Genesis 6 conspiracy? You got another book in the pipeline? I, I do. I, you know, I, I set another book aside that I was 300 pages into, and uh, I decided that I should listen to the audience. And in the shows that I do and the questions I take and the emails that I receive and the social media I do, it became quite clear that there's this sort of 
thirst for more knowledge within the in the Bible uh, about giants and about prophecy, about prehistory, and all of those interconnected topics that I, I alluded to a couple of minutes ago, and that this was not being addressed in the churches. In fact, it's it's rare that we see the whole Bible taught in churches in the whole context of the Bible taught. So. People were saying we really love the first book, but what we would really like is somebody who just focuses straight on what's in the Bible. And believe me, there's way more information in there than most people think. So the only thing I promised the audience is, is I would do a shorter book, and I did. It's only 84 chapters, so it's not quite as long as the first book, but it goes deeper, and it is as unique of a book and even more research in it. I've spent over two years just on the research, additional research to, 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 to do this book. And it is as unique as the first book, but it can be read independently of the first book. But reading either one, I think, will lead people to want to read the other one. So the second book is called The Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. How understanding prehistory and giants helps to define end time prophecy. So I go in and I lay out all the different things about angels that are talked about in, in, the, in the Old Testament, about all of the giant nations, whether or not people recognize some of them as giant nations, who these hybrids that are talked about in the polytheist cultures that people would call the Shazu, at least the Egyptians called them the Shazu, and identify those hybrid nations that enter married with the giants, take that through the exodus, and I walk through all of the war campaigns. So if you're not familiar with the Battle of Rephidim or Athronim, then you're in for a treat, and then I do the eastern campaign, and I do the central, the northern, the southern, and I walk through all of the wars of the judges and connect those back to hybrids and giant battles and all the way through to the King Solomon Wars. And then I use the terms that I'm identifying in the first part of the book uh, for what you need to understand and to have a larger context for end-time prophecies because a lot of the allegory is defined in prehistory, and prehistory gives us the whole context for the end time. It's the whole reason things are playing out is what has happened um, you know, in prehistory. So you need to understand that and the terms to understand end time prophecy, and then I lay out a chronology and a application on end time prophecy that most people won't have seen before. It's rather simple. I explain it in the book. But what it does do is it just starts to answer all the questions and the fuzziness of end time prophecy and take some of the conflicts away. And, you know, one of the things I don't believe you should ever do in any sort of research is, is uh, ignore inconvenient sources or inconvenient passages in the Bible. And so, when I say sources, that's just when you're doing outside the Bible research. You need to be able to handle those types of arguments as well. So this book is deep. It's specifically targeted at Christians, and I have moved the footnotes uh, to from endnotes to footnotes for the second book so that you can look at what is being said, look at the note, and read it on the same page. And there's going to be significantly more information in the footnotes in this book than there was in the first book. And it is as well annotated as the first book. So where I had over 100 pages of endnotes, this will be similar uh, in size of the account, but a lot more information in there. Gary, I'm ex- I'm salivating right now. I'm so excited to hear you've got a, another book in the pipeline 
Uh, what uh, date are you looking at for potential release? We had hoped for an August or September, but the editing process has been more difficult on the editors, and I've had to do a lot of uh, editing of the editors to make sure they're not losing the consistency or their original spellings to some words and things like that. Yes. So it's in typesetting right now. Um, so we're uh, and I started the editing process in in May. So it's been it's been a process. And so release is going to be November or October. Uh, oh wow! For October, just in time for my birthday. Yes. Yeah, so my birthday's in November. Yes, yeah, and then. Now, look, if you get it to me by Christmas, I'm going to be a happy camper. <laughs> uh, folks, you're going to be excited. Uh, welcome aboard if you're just joining us. We're just cranking the show up. We're live with Gary Wayne. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment and also tell you how you can uh, order Gary's books. But I want to take you back to where it all started, Genesis 6. And, Gary, uh, assume people know nothing, uh, and there will be others that uh, are right along side with us and have read the book but um, I'm going to read a scripture for you and have you uh, comment on it Uh, Genesis 6 it says there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And, you know, you fast forward down to verse 9, it says, uh, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, this is just prior to the flood, I believe, um, your story takes place in Genesis 6. Now, I believe the Word of God is a is true history, every bit of it. Um, and so as I read this, we had literal giants in the earth. Uh, what would you define a giant as? And then we hear the term Nephilim. Uh, delineate that for me. Yeah, very, very good question. And good to have the, uh, you know, the complete sort of passage in there and so he also noted the the generation of Noah and we see that as the generation of Noah in Genesis 9:29 is exactly in those his words that and the same words that Jesus Jesus will use in one of his overarching signs in his end time uh, oration uh, so the days of Noah Jesus used those exact same words um, was 600 years before the flood and 350 years after the flood. So it's important we understand this generation. And so it's, it's Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the preamble to the flood story. In other words, it's the introduction to the flood. It's the context for the flood. It's the central theme to why the flood is going to come about. And so we have some terms in there like the sons of God and we have the giants and the giant uh, word that is used goes back to the Hebrew word nephil and that's the singular form and more, most people would be familiar with maybe perhaps nephilim which is the male plural so just as you have trubim just as you have 
just as you have uh, seraphim, you have um, the Nephilim. And so when we look at that word, the Nephilim, that's translated as giants in the King James Version, other translations will actually translate it directly as Nephilim, and it means exactly that. It means a tribe of giants. It means a giant, or it can be multiple giants, uh, using the, the plural. It can mean a tyrant and a bully, and, and, and they're described as the men of renown. And this term, the men of renown, comes dually from two Hebrew words, uh, Shem, as in famous and or infamous. You could use it either way, and I think infamous in this case. And Shemaim, which means the heavens or the heavenly ones. So just as you have the I am plural for uh, the Nephilim as the giant ones, you also have that as the seraphim, which are the serpent-faced, six-winged dragon angels of heaven that work before the altar, as described in Isaiah 6. They are the serpent ones. Um, and they're described and defined as a serpent-faced or a dragon-faced angel. And understanding the Hebrew word sort of provides us a little bit more context, and that's why a lot of people will use the word Nephilim, in that these were uh, men of reputation. Uh, these were uh, giants, and in comparative to what a human being would be. And a lot of people like to sort of dis dismiss away that these were actually giants, that they may have been you know, a foot taller or a couple feet taller. We're not sure how large the antediluvian giants were. And when I say the word antediluvian, if you're not familiar with that, that just simply means before the flood and post-diluvian is after the flood. And they were larger than the giants that inexplicably show up again after the flood. And uh, these are the ones who were created by the sons of God, which are... Um, Ben Ha Elohim, uh, and these are angels. And I know the standard sort of dogma as we get taught these days is that these could be Sethites, or these could be um, the future sort of reference as humans, as in the sons of God, as if the promise of the resurrection in the New Testament. But that's that's a prophecy. That's for down the road. So even though it's the same words as sons of God will be adopted through Christ's crucifixion in the afterlife, in the resurrection sequences that are, that are laid out in the New Testament. So, and will be adopted as Jesus' brothers because of his crucifixion. And even though we have human fathers, which is a significant uh, understanding as you, you read the New Testament versions as were referenced as the sons of God. Some people say that uh, the sons of God are used for the Israelites, but again, that's for the second exodus. Those are two prophecies in the book of Hosea and elsewhere that are referencing that. So again, that's not for the time before the flood. And the sons of God are the same ones that are utilized in the verse of Job 1, 6 and 2, 1 in 34, 4 through 7. And these are the ones who present themselves in heaven before God at their represented times. And it's the time where Satan is following. So Satan has already been degraded as this 
And so his rebellion has already taken place at the time of the Job passages. And we know these aren't humans because in Job 34, or 38, 4 through 7, I'm sorry, you have the sons of God and the morning stars singing at God's creation. Well, humans weren't around at the time of creation. Uh, We followed later according to biblical chronology. We also know that sons of God are used with morning stars in that passage, and stars are used both in the New Testament and Old Testament to represent angels in specific passages. So there's a connection there as well, and you have the host of heaven, which is the Hebrew word Saba, which is this rank and order and army of angels, both rebellious and loyal, that we have to be aware of. And we know we have to be aware of because Satan is the prince of this world, and we have the council of gods uh, in Psalms 82, which is also sons of the Most High, um, similar and almost identical languages to the sons of God in uh, Genesis 6. And they rule over the 70 nations documented in Deuteronomy 32, both before and after the flood, same, same number of 70 nations of original nations that are listed after the flood in First Chronicles in Genesis 10. And you have this host that's used in conjunction with angels. You have the host that's used in conjunction with stars. You have sons of God being used with the host. You have an interrelationship of these four terms throughout the Old Testament, all testifying to the fact that these are angels and, and not humans. And so something important was going on in Genesis 6, that you had watchers, as they're described in other accounts, and particularly out of the book of Enoch, uh, who went and copulated with human females to create these giants. And just as it's described in Genesis 6, First Enoch provides a lot more information on this, but it's telling about the same understanding and the same thing that's important to understand our history what's going on today and what's going to happen in the future and we get the word watcher in the bible and it's not an outside term and so if you go to the book of daniel in daniel 4 watcher is used four times and that word goes back to the hebrew word ayir and these are the ones who are coming from the throne of God and they're dispensing how things are going to be governed. So there's four groups of watchers around the the throne of God. You've got the archangels, you've got the trugum, you've got the seraphim, and then you've got these ones who aren't named but are described, not named in the uh, English language, but they're named in the Hebrew language. These are the ones with all of the eyes who are similar to Trubum, but they have a face of a Trubum, so there's one face that's different. And they're in the wheels of, of the throne in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10. And the wheels on the outside that are going around, those are the Hebrew word Gilgal, as in the Gilgal Raphaim, or the wheel of the giants at the foot of Mount Hermon on the Golan Heights. But the ones that are in the throne... That's the Hebrew word ophan, and the IML plural would be the ophanine angels, and they're like the throne angels, and when you look to the book of Enoch, and one of the reasons why, even if it's been corrupted, you know, it had an original basis in Hebrew, the four groups of the watchers included the fourth group 
added on to the archangels, the seraphim, the cherubim are the Ophanim. And a lot of people ask me, who are these Ophanim? That's who they are, and that's where they come from in the Bible. And these are the watchers. But the ones who dictate religion and, and government are the seraphim. And so these are the watchers uh, that first go in Genesis 6. Uh, to create the giants, and one deduces because it says in there is that they went to them again, and that could both mean uh, again before the flood and again perhaps after the flood. You could uh, look at understanding that both ways um, or individually as being in, in, those, in those separate epochs. You know, and um, so you would have had other watchers that created giants as well. That's a great point you just brought up, and actually something I just saw tonight for the first time, and I've read the Bible before, and probably read this verse many times, but I just picked up on that tonight. It says, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. Do you think that could be, uh, sound check, Gary, am I still with you? Hello there, did I lose you? Stand by. Hold on a second. Gary, did we lose you? Okay, hold on a minute. Let us get Gary back on. Hold on a sec, folks. Boy, it's going to be a good program. Let's add Gary in. Here we go. Stand by. We're dialing back. There was a power outage in this area. Gary, do we have you back? You do. I'm not sure what happened there. It kicked over to my voicemail. <laughs> That's okay. I apologize for that. Um, live with Gary Wayne. Gary, this is actually uh, something I just uh, it just illuminated tonight as you're doing the program. Could that, and what it says, and also after that, it, could that be a link to where we see uh, giants post-flood? You know, in the time where David is actually going up against Goliath and his four brothers and other giants in the land? uh because my assumption has always been uh, there's wickedness upon the earth. We've got these giants now, and God sends the flood to destroy them. But then my question was, how do they survive that flood? Maybe they didn't, but they yeah. come back. Was there a repeat of what these uh, angels did in Genesis 6 after the flood? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and my personal opinion and speculation and where I lean heavily towards is that there would be a second incursion after the flood, and I would use that as part of a basis for that. But we don't have a smoking gun verse as to how these giants show up after the flood. We only know that they do because they're described. Typically, they're, they're not described as Nephilim after the flood, so there's something different. They're described uh, specifically as Repha or Raphaim, and the tribe of the Raphaim shows up in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants, and then in Genesis 15 amongst the Mighty Ten in the land that God is presenting uh, and gifting to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenants from the Nile to the Euphrates. And so... Repha is used as Raphaim 25 times in the Old Testament in Hebrew and only translated twice as a tribe. But when you see the word giant, most of the times in the Old Testament, it's going back to the Hebrew word Raphaim. And so Nephilim only shows up three times 
So once in Genesis 6 before the flood, and then twice in Numbers 13.33 in the embellished part of the report that the scouts are doing, the evil report, not the report and the detail that Caleb and um, Joshua are reporting, but they're using the word Anak as the children of giants, and that's used twice there, and that word is Nephil or Nephilim. And that's an embellishment and a testimony to the veracity of how ferocious and vicious and large that these giants were before the flood because they're using that to scare the Israelites. The Anakim, and there's three Anakim kings that are described in Numbers 13, 13, um, sorry, Numbers 13, the chapter, they are Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. And then you have the peoples that are taller, and these are the hybrids, and we might want to get into that down the road. But the Anakim kings um, are described in Deuteronomy 2, where it has other tribes like the Emim and the Horim, for example. These are giants that goes back to the Hebrew word Rapha. So these are post-Diluvian giants wow. with a different source word to denote something a little bit different. And so Goliath, who is six cubits and a span, and I think was king of Gath, uh, he would be measured according to Josephus, uh, that you measured these giants on, on a royal cubit, which is 21 inches versus the standard 18, and he is the king of Gath. And Ashish, another giant, will replace him afterwards. If he would be, on a, on a royal cubit, he would be 11 feet 3 inches tall but he'd be 9'9 nine, nine on a standard cubit. So no matter what, he's going to be large, and they're going to be extraordinarily wide. And so he's part of four sons of a giant, or four sons of the giants, depending on how you want to translate that, as it shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, and that's the Hebrew word Rapha and Raphaim. So when you see the valley of the giants, yes. that's uh, the valley of the Raphaim. Uh, same root word there. The only other time giant doesn't go back to either Raphaim or uh, Nephilim is one time in the book of Job where it co- it's derived from the word gibberim or gibur. I am is the male plural, and that's the same word that's used to describe the giants in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the mighty ones. Okay. Uh, now, so uh, to recap something here, uh, when we read the term sons of God uh, in the Genesis account, we're talking about a class of angelic beings uh, and these are creatures created by God that had the ability to procreate is that what the research is showing whereas there's other angels that uh, do not do that uh, would that be an accurate statement there are some that God created that uh, actually were able to impregnate women because you need sperm and an egg. Uh, do you think they actually had sexual intercourse with the women? Or some have postulated that um, uh, they took them and um, and basically um, manipulated uh, sperm of a, a man and put it in the egg, you know, something like uh, these abductions taking place. I, I kind of lean towards they actually impregnated the women through sex. What do you think? Yeah, the language is clearly... Uh, being used that there's a sexual um, act that's going on there and people will say well these are spirit beings so how is that possible 
So um, the other aspect that people might throw out there would be that there's no sex in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. And they usually like to uh, throw out Matthew 24, but I would encourage people to look at Luke's version because it's more expanded and it really sort of talks about, you know, as we're resurrected to be like sons of God, there's no need for marriage, right? So it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. But in order to create something physically, you're going to need a physical body. So angels, and I think most angels, uh, have the ability to create a physical body here on earth in the physical world. They can show up as a spirit or they can take a, a body and a gender of, of their choice. And here's how I get there. So in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative and just before, you have the angel of the Lord, the preexistent Jesus as a physical uh, Jesus on earth, uh, shows up with two angels that um, are first aren't recognized as angels, are recognized as men, and that they eat, drink, touch, interact uh, with Abraham. And then two of these angels go on to Sodom where the Sodomites want to have sex with them, whether or not they want them to change a gender or they want to have homosexual sex. I'll leave that for people to speculate on, but they were wanting to have sex with them. And so they recognize them as men and angels. So they can take a physical form. The New Testament also tells us this in the book of Hebrews that we want to be good to strangers because you never know when you might encounter an angel. So there's this ability. So the question is, is how do they do that? Um, and in the New Testament, we're told you have three components to your being. You have the spirit that comes from heaven, and you have the soul and the body, which is of this earth, and only Jesus and God can separate the spirit from the soul. So if we understand that the soul and the body is from the physical world, then that's what the angels are going to have to be able to have an ability to recreate. So if you go to Jude 1.6, where it talks about the original angels who left their habitation in heaven and committed these crimes and went to the abyss uh, for those crimes, because it's illegal to do this, whether it's in heaven or on earth, um, but they were, have permission to carry things out through free will in the physical world. So that word is oikotarian in Greek, and that means a dwelling place for the spirit. So just as they left their dwelling place for their spirit in heaven, they need a dwelling place for the spirit on earth. Oikotarian is used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, for the house in heaven. And again, oikotarian, a dwelling place that uh, is being prepared for us in, in heaven, and it'll be a special dwelling place because we're going to have something created that's new in the resurrection with our body that can go back and forth between the physical world and the spiritual dimension, just as Jesus' body did. So it's going to be created in that image. And so they they create this body so that, and I'll just finish and and so I can let you back in. Take your time. They they have this body so that they can create their DNA, and they pass on that DNA Mm. and obviously gifts and traits on to either the men or the women that they're copulating with because through the secular lens and the polytheist lens of the accounts you have um, female goddesses who are um, copulating with human men to create giants like Gilgamesh, son of Lugalbanda and the fertility goddess 
uh, men and lots of accounts in, in, in the Greek uh, mythology. So this is how they do it. And they actually can create several different bodies and, and, and change forms. They have, they have this changeling capability. So that's how they're able to get it done. And the thing is, is the kind of angel that would be reproducing would pass on DNAs that would have them look more like the godfather of the celestial mafia or the Nephilim as I call them one which are the fallen ones which are the Hebrew word that Nephil comes from the Nephilim of the Shemaim of the heavenly ones and so you have the seraphim who seemingly created most of the giants at least initially and then there would have been other ones that were created afterwards so that's why you have in polytheism all of these gods that have the seraphim serpent dragon look and the early kings have that serpentine look as well and they're all represented as kings and that even after the flood this is the same thing so when deduces even after the flood most of the ones are going to be created by or survived depending on how you want to get there Um, most of them would have the seraphim look, although there are some different descriptions of different kinds of giants. And so you could look at Akhenaten as a good example to look at. And this is over a thousand years after the flood, and he's a pharaoh of Egypt and father of King Tutankhamun. And if you look at his picture, even a thousand years after the flood, and there's been some dilution of the bloodlines as, as you get into the post-Diluvian epoch because of the fertility issue they they come across, um, and they're going to have to intermarry with humans, you still see this protruding chin, these high cheekbones, these large wraparound eyes that glowed because they were called the shining ones both before and after the flood, and this elongated serpentine skull that doesn't have any sutures. And that is over a thousand years after their creation. And you turn, especially when you see a vision from the side of that or go up personally, you're looking at a snake's face. There's just no doubt in my mind about that. So, um, and so I think second creation is how they did that. And they did it the same way and described in the same way as Genesis 6. But some people say that they, they survived the flood. So, I won't go into all the different ways that they could do it, but the most likely one is is on another arc. Um, and it, you get an example in the Epic of Gilgamesh of, uh, you know, Gilgamesh is created after the flood as a second incursion, a uh, sixth generation of kings in, in Sumer after the flood, son of Lugabanda of Uruk. And... He is two-thirds God, one-third human, so we know he's a demigod. But he's um, on the search for Utmapishtin, who is the Sumerian Noah. And he's two-thirds God, one-third human, and a demigod in in the archetypical Nephilim. And so is all of his family to survive the flood, and the angels, fallen angels, make an ark for him. So you get both there. And so... The Greek mythology has a similar accounting of giant survival stories. They have to delineate the flood stories around the world between giants and humans. So Deucalion uh, and Pyrrha, the Greek Noah, Deucalion is the son of Prometheus, and he is a god. So he, Deucalion is a giant as well. 
And so it's describing a, a giant story. So how you can make that biblically, it's a little bit legal, but you could make that case that they survived based on that. And in Genesis 6 and in Genesis 7, it says that God was going to destroy everything he created. Well, he didn't create the giants. The fallen angels did. So if you want to get technical, that would be biblically how I would say that that could happen, and you get those stories all around the world. But I prefer second incursion because it just fits for me, it fits better, but I, because I don't have sure. that smoking gun verse after the flood, I have to be open-minded. And then there's some other ways that people will say on the ark that some of the ark people were uh, either uh, giants or all of them were giants or they carried the DNA of the, of the giants. Uh, I, again, I still think it fits better biblically with, with the second incursion. I think you're right on target there. We're live with Gary Wayne, if you're just joining us, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, when the sons of God, that would be referring to the seraphim, came in unto the daughters of men, that means they went in and had relations, sexual relations, they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, were true of old, men of renown. In other words, they, uh, their offspring, the angelic with the women, were giants, also known as the Nephil, or Nephilim, if they're male. And uh, I see in verse 5, Gary, it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him in his heart, at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, here's the thought that comes to me. What would be the reason God would want to destroy all these animals? Is it possible that uh, these angels were mating not only with women, but were they doing something also with the animals, maybe to create um, chimera-like creatures? So these angels set off to corrupt all flesh. Um do you have any research you've come across uh, that would maybe support this thought that they were also mating with animals and creating, uh, you know, what we've seen uh, in mythology, the centaur, you know, the um, the half man, the half goat, what do they call those? Um, you know what I'm, yeah, exactly. Uh, do you think that these, uh, do you think that either the angels or the giant offspring maybe? were mating also with animals and trying to corrupt their DNA too? Yeah, I, I do, and there's some nuances in this. Uh, so the angels have a lot of technology. They have a lot of knowledge. And in all civilizations all around the world, they pass on knowledge to create civilizations in the polytheist cultures as their history goes. Book of Enoch talks about the same thing, that they provided illicit knowledge. And according to the, the Gnostics and the Masons and polytheists, is that um, Enoch, son of Cain, there's two Enochs in the Bible, had learned the knowledge from Cain, that Cain had learned the knowledge from Adam while running this massive um, estate of, of ranch and orchards and farming and all sorts of things, and he was taught 
a lot of knowledge and that was passed on to Cain and Abel and Seth. And then Cain passed it on to Enoch. He separates us into the seven sacred sciences that we know as the seven liberal arts. That's to design people, to lead people away from God, to degrade God and not give God credit for anything and to honor the pantheon of God. And this is the knowledge that's going to merge with the angelic technology, so to speak, or the angelic knowledge. And it's going to take the whole world to a level uh, that we're just starting to catch up. So that term as in the days of Noah is, is so important. And so here's how we sort of get there kind of biblically. So I mean, look at the, the uh, look at the transhumanism yeah, gonna, going on right now, Gary. Um, they're mm-hmm. merging human with animal species. Yep. Uh, They've worked on rats and put cells from a human brain in there. They're growing ears on the backs of animals. Uh, Pigs that produce human blood. I mean, there's a whole list we can go down here. Uh, Do you think that they were doing this and more in those times? Experimentation on animals, too? I do, because this knowledge was being passed on. It was part of the whole hierarchy and the development of the knowledge. And so when we get that term chimera that they use today, they created chimera creatures in Greek mythology and, and in other mythologies. You know, King Hababa of the Cedar Forest, he's a typical chimera type of giant, many different animal parts on it. So there's, I think there's DNA manipulation going on, plant genome DNA, uh, manipulation is going on, and there's the copulation that aspect yes. that's going on and different types of corruption. And so... We get there now with this understanding provided to us in the Bible, in the word, the whole earth was corrupted, um, with the understanding that this is connected to uh, the giants and everything else that was going on there that includes this angelic technology, and that's the Hebrew word shakath, corrupted. And that word means perverted. Perverted. Ruined. Perverted, ruined. degraded, decayed, words like that. So the implication would be is is that they they perverted all of the DNA on the earth of humans and animals and all of the plant genomes and everything on the earth was corrupt and had to be wiped off the face of the earth and that only the eight were pure of that and pure spiritually when presumes goes along with that and that the yes. animals called to the ark were a kind or a species, and they represented only those that were not corrupted. Oh, boy. So when it says perfect in generations, we're talking about uh, his DNA had not been corrupted with uh, Nephilim uh, DNA. He was not a hybrid. Nephilim DNA. Yep, yep. Both physically and spiritually not corrupted. Perfect in both ways. My goodness. Uh do you think that uh, the whole intent here of Satan was to try to destroy mankind, and if he could corrupt the DNA, uh, he got us? That was part of the plan. Yeah, that was, you know, the angelic rebellion um, is the context for why we're, we were created. Uh, you know, when the Adamites are created in Genesis 2, you have a special commission being awarded to Adam and, and then Eve, and that uh, we are the answer or the resolution to the angelic rebellion. 
And the fallen angels know this, so they've rebelled by this point, just as Satan has, I, you know, some people believe he deceived Eve, I, I think he was uh, coaching or entering into the Nahash serpent to deceive Eve, yes. um, and Satan wasn't the one that was punished, it was the serpent, so that's part of where I get there, there's a lot more to it than, than that, but that's the simple answer, and that that was his first revenge to ensure that humankind were not going to be raised up to be like angels and inheritors of eternity. So they've been trying to destroy humankind ever since then. And you have the second, what I would call, um, revenge that happens in Genesis 6, so that the spurious offspring of fallen angels are created to lead humankind into complete obliteration to be remembered no more wow to be just as as what the giants tried to do and in the amalekite covenant to wipe israel from the face of the earth to be remembered no more so that we don't have the opportunity to fulfill our destiny that was written into the book of life from before creation that everybody has a chance to leave their names in or have it blotted out and they wanted to make sure that all the names were blotted out and that would be still their intent today Gary if they could have successfully corrupted all mankind well there would have been no uh, pure DNA for Jesus Christ to come from there would have been no savior that could have come and saved mankind we would have all been corrupted God would have just had to destroy us all now, Satan yep. literally wanted to create man in his own image, didn't he? In the image yes. of these uh, Nephilim. Uh, I'm going to take you way into yep. the future now. So we, we've got Genesis 6 as the starting point here for the book and the research you did. And uh, I'm going to just uh, pull no punches here, let the chips fall where they may. Here we are in 2023. We've just come out of the COVID-19 wars. I'm sitting on the island of Bali here, uh, Denpasar, Bali, Indonesia. Uh, up until about three months ago, I could not get off of this island and back in unless I had taken the mRNA vaccinations. And uh, I did not take them. Uh, I believe that uh, there was nefarious things at work here. In fact, some are still of the opinion that uh, mRNA can overwrite DNA and there's no coming back from it. I hope they're wrong, but for those sake that have taken it. But I almost feel like we're right here in the thick of it and Satan is trying to pull this trick again. He wants to obliterate mankind and we see all this transhumanism going on, all this experimentation with plant and animal, splicing genes, and God only knows what's been created in some of the laboratories and allowed to live. Uh, did you see that movie, by the way, called Splice that came out a few years ago? Yes. I saw that uh, late at night, and as I came out of the theater, there was only a few of us in there, I had the chilling feeling that if there was ever a look at Genesis 6, we saw the kind of things that was being done there. Horrific movie. And uh, Yes. That was some years ago. We know technology increases at light speed. 
power of a computer. Uh, what we can do today is so much more advanced than even 10 years ago. I said all that to say this. Uh, I have a feeling that Satan is trying to obliterate mankind again, is trying to do it by literally overriding our DNA with mRNA. And uh, I believe this whole COVID-19 thing was really a cover story, Gary, for a brute force power grab of the planet to push us into an antichrist system and to literally try to wipe out the DNA of mankind again, overwrite God's DNA with some mRNA technology and turn us into living, walking hybrids. Now, just put that to the side for a moment. I want to ask you the million-dollar question. Do we have descendants of the Nephilim that made this incursion over there in Genesis 6 when the angels came into the daughters of woman of man and mated with them? Do we have them walking among us right now in 2023 in the globe? Yeah, the answer is is, is yes. At least they believe that that's the case. Those who believe they are the descendants. So they keep their genealogies. They keep their genealogies into prehistory and all the different bloodlines of these giants and angels is important. They call that scion in, in, in the uh, bloodline cult. And scion usually people think is a, as a first um son and it's partially that particularly when you're starting new dynasties but it also means grafting in and in their belief system it's grafting in of uh, of their pure bloodlines that increases their ennobleness and their increases their position in the hierarchy in the world hierarchy so they take their pre their genealogies back to specific giants and to specific of the celestial mafia uh, their godfathers uh, one of the fallen angels and you have a uh, system of nobility that's ruled that ruled before the flood and took over the ruling class again after the flood uh, and with the giants and created the dynasties that's where the beast dynasties come from. These are the royales. Um, these are the kings and the nobility class. The nobility class was just the larger uh, class of the nobility bloodlines. They controlled all of the industry all of the army and control they controlled the religion with their bloodline priests and they controlled the kingships and and they used humans for their slave labor so you'd have you would in a four-class system you would have had uh, them populating the top two and then on the bottom left you would have the small merchant trade of blacksmiths and bakers and tailors and such and then you have the slave class and that was a standard class system they set up all around the world in Europe it was the feudal system um, and so these are uh, the royales and that word roy in royale goes back to old French king R-O-I back to regal and rule as it goes back to Indo-Aryans or post-Diluvian giants and there was four groupings after the flood of those Indo-Aryans and to uh, Al, which is a transliteration of El, which is the Hebrew word for, for uh, in the small case, for a god or a angel. And, of course, in the uppercase, it would represent the Most High uh, and or the Elohim. And Elohim would be the plural, so you could have small case Elohim as in multiple gods or angels. And so these are kings of God. And they're also known in their um, 
culture as Rex Deus or Rex Deus, some, as you could also pronounce it. And that also means in Latin, kings of God. And they believe that they received their divine right to rule, just as King James asserted that, and the Stuarts as, as, you know, asserted that, from the Baalim gods uh, of Mount Hermit. And Baal is the offspring god of El, who was before the flood, and Baal is the one in the Ugaritic text who creates with Ashtaroth in combination, but with humans, each of them, separately, not with each other, to create the Rapha or the Raphaim after the flood. They are the Raphiu or the Raphium in the Ugaritic text, or the Semitic word for RPM. And they issued through their assembly at Mount Hermon, Saphon, as it's recorded in uh, the Ugaritic text, but even... Uh, in the Bible, we get Sirion as another name for Mount Hermon, or Sion, S-I-O-N, as Deuteronomy 4 lists it as. So uh, lots of different names, but all pointing to the same mountain that's thought to be the Napur mountain in, in Sumerian history, and that the cedar forest of the, of the uh, Gilgamesh epic was actually on Mount Hermon. And so divine right to rule went out to their spurious offspring, to their sons and daughters that are ruling as kings and queens around the rule from the assembly of gods in Satan's assembly that Psalms 82 describes throughout the earth for the visible ones because we fight both against the invisible ones and the visible ones just as yes. Satan sits above the council of gods and is the prince of this world and the god of this world so yes they believe they are and you have king Charles III right now, who yes. uh, has genealogies that he likes to talk about every now and then, and one of them, which is just kind of interesting, and understand that the Windsors changed their name from uh, Hanover to Windsor in World War One. so there's the German replacement bloodline for uh, the Stuart bloodline, even though there's Scion Stuart bloodline into uh, the Windsor family. But he says he's a descendant of Vlad the Impaler. Oh, boy. And he's a, yeah, and he's on record. I have a link for people if they want to uh, uh, get a hold of me. I can send you the that link on that. That's not a nice that. dude right um, there. And, what's, and he, that's, the, that's the one that uh, Dracula is based on as a vampire character. And dragon, Dracula means son of a dragon. And so dragon and serpent were thought to be the same in, in ancient ology. And of course he drinks blood like Nephilim does to create immortality. And the Nephilim used to drink the blood to extend their life because they lost their immortality in Genesis 6-3. Oh boy. And so. That's, um. And Vlad the, and Vlad the Impaler takes his bloodlines back to Hercules, son of Zeus. Oh. And alchemy. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, we're live with Gary Wayne. We can't hope to go through the whole book in uh, time tonight, but we're just trying to give you some appetizers here. You've got to get this book. Uh, I'm so excited to be here with Gary Wayne. He's the author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Okay, let me insert something there, Gary. You're talking about blood. Uh, I know the Word of God says life's in the blood. We're not to drink the blood. Uh, you're, you know, you're to drain blood from animals before you eat them. Um, and we hear this term adrenochrome a lot right now. You know, the human trafficking, um, you know, all these children and ladies, some men, 
disappearing. We know some are sold into sexual slavery. Some are being harvested for their organs. We hear even the horrific third one that people are being kidnapped for their blood so these monster uh, demonic people can uh, drink their blood, the adrenochrome. Uh, When I hear giants discussed in history, there always seems to be a connection between the giants and cannibalism. Did you find that in your research, that uh, these half-angel, half-human, these giants, these Nephil, um, had the propensity to eat a lot, and they ate humans as well? Were they cannibal creatures? Well, we certainly get that in the Book of Enoch and in some of the other books of Enoch, and we get that in polytheist accounts. We don't specifically get that in the Bible. Um, But these were the terrible ones, and the terrible ones did these types of things, and they had a special sort of punishment. So where you get the terrible ones from is in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 32, and there's other passages as well. But Ezekiel 32 is the uh, sort of the eye-popping one, and it's a dual prophecy that has important information in prehistory. It's relative to the time of the prophet, and to also has a relationship with the end time, and you have to distinguish the details, otherwise you're going to say it's in contradiction. So, But Pharaoh is talking to the terrible ones that are locked in the sides of the abyss, and these are the ones who were slain on the earth, and uh, they did horrible things to humankind, and that's why they were called the terrible ones, and that included uh, the crimes that you're talking about, specifically eating us and, and drinking the blood. They really prized the blood to increase their um, mental cognizance and their life uh, life expectancy. Uh, and it was practiced both before the flood, after the flood, and throughout the royal cult and throughout the secret societies that, that they spawned at the adept level. So they're always in need of this blood supply and uh, and uh, sacrificial people for these what you would call elite noble occult rituals at the highest levels. Wow! And you know they're doing that for for their gods who aren't in the abyss. To, you know to give them more power and um, to give their um, <clears throat> gods more power. And no. because there's that life force that's in the blood, right? And yes, there's an old there was an old Highlander series that's based on the fairy allegories as opposed to the dragon allegory of the of the bloodlines, and it was called the Highlanders, and they had this quickening that they had where they yes. took the head of this of this Nephilim type of character, this warrior character, and there can only be one, just as there only be one Antichrist in the end time, and they had this sort of lightning spirit going into their body, and they would take that power. So they certainly believe that and that they could accumulate that power by uh, uh, consuming more of that blood. That's where uh, terrible... That's where terrible came from? The word terrible one uh, is the Hebrew word erit, and eritim would be its plural for the terrible ones. And uh, terrible uh, ones, um, they're defined as typical descriptions to s- describe Nephilim as warriors and strong and powerful and this and that, but that's where you get the fertility issue 
after the flood with these terrible ones and that um, not only infertility but childless and I think that was happening through the the females because there's there's fewer and fewer females that get recorded of these pure blood giants we do get a, uh, one or two that are listed in the Bible but that's it and so that's the root word for ugarit. Ugarit. And take the U-G off, you have arit. Oh. And ug is the root word for og. So og is O-W-G if it's transliterated. Its root word for round or stout, because there were these wide, stocky individuals, was U-W-G. And uh, uh, the vowelist part, as it would be pronounced because it's silence, is, is U-G. So it would be the city of Og before he moved to uh, Mount Hermon to rule over the Amorites. Um, and, they, and the Raphaim are basically wiped, the tribe is basically wiped out of Mount Hermon in the Genesis War. But he's the last of the giants, the last of the Raphaim, as you take that back to Hebrew. And so that would have been his city. So he, in Hebrew you would have it as Kiriath Ugari, just as you have for the patriarch of the Anakim, which is Arba, not in the Table of Nations either, uh, would be Kiriath Arba, and that's the city of Arba, and that uh, was later changed to the city of name that we know it today as Hebron. Now that's a good point you bring up. Og, the last of the giants, would he have been literally one of the last of the first generation of the mating between these Seraphim and the the women that produce the the Nephilim, and then uh, now, yeah. I'm not yeah, a geneticist. That's how I, I that's how I understand that. As but, opposed to surviving the flood, because we don't get Raphaim biblically used okay. uh, before the flood, only after the flood. Check my math here. Um, okay, so if you've got this angel angels, and they're mating with a woman and a daughter of men and they have a, a, a baby, and they could have a male or female baby, right? Uh, that child is going to be yep. 50% uh, angel, 50% human. Now, yes. they produced a giant baby. I'm just using giant uh, because that's uh, synonymous with the Nephil, right? And this giant, okay, is the first generation of that coupling. Uh, they're going to go out there, and let's say they take them a wife too, a human wife, well, the offspring of that, what would that be? One quarter angel at that point in yeah. time? Um, so yeah. unless... Yeah, one quarter, yeah. So over time, you're going to get some uh, dilution of the bloodline. But don't quote me on this number, but there was some research done some years ago on DNA. And uh, this report came out that about 6% of the population that was surveyed was believed to have a different DNA than the rest, at least partially. And basically, the scientists said, geneticists said, these are uh, people that are connected with the Cro-Magnum. Uh, they believe that there was, uh, you know, another earlier form of us. Well, whatever the case may be, um, here's my question for you. It sounds clear to me that uh, there is some of this corrupted DNA walking among us right now. Could they have actually picked up on some people that have got some of this Nephilim DNA in, in them today? And um, as you mentioned, could this really be 
found more along these elite families who are in uh, rule of much of the world as we speak? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So if you look at uh, what they call this gene in the occult, they call it the gene of ISIS. Oh. They call it the LB gens. They call it uh, the Julia gens. That's uh, the black nobility of Italy. Um, and they have a specific name for that gene uh, that passes down the line. And it's the gene that would create the blood type. So you have about 15% of the population of the world that would have Rh negative. And it's thought that this is where the bloodline comes from and is that specific gene. And that people who are Rh negative, they tend to be more blonde-haired and blue-eyed, red-haired, hazel-eyed, pale-skinned, not all the time, but majority they have more paranormal experiences, a higher level of intelligence, and a whole bunch of other different things. And so it's the gene that creates this. And a lot of people say we can't add something that's missing something because Rh negative is missing the D antigen, but it's the gene that added it in and produces the blood. So that's where that comes from. And typically is passed on by, you know, from a more pure sense from a matriarch who has, you know, uh, Rh negative, but typically always their top one O negative that they would consider the highest sort of level. So you have a population out there that's been intermixed with humans, and that starts after the flood because, again, as we talked about, we understand that there's a distinction between the antediluvian and the postdiluvian, and that's that fertility issue. You're going to see some of this intermarriage because they don't want to go extinct. So they're going to have to intermarry with humans, and they're going to have to do so to replenish the bloodline so they don't have all of these blood diseases like hemophiliac disease or Habsburg jaw disease and other diseases like that and that we actually get biblically an account of this kind of uh, hybrid human dynasty being produced so if you go to Genesis 36 you have the Dukes of Edom and these are the Alephim where the part of the mythos of the elven bloodlines or the elf bloodlines or the fairy bloodlines comes from and the patriarch for these uh, dukes of Seir, or dukes of Horim, are the, is Seir. And Seir goes back to the Hebrew word satir. And when you're talking about devil goat gods or those types of things, that's the Hebrew word sa'ir. And sa means hairy and a'ir is watcher. So it's a degraded watcher. So the seraphim angels that rebelled, um, would have been degraded as Satan was degraded to Satan status, they would have been degraded to satyr status, and they kind of show up after the flood in in the mythological accounts as opposed to before the flood. So Azazel, who would have started off as seraphim, is degraded to um, satyr status and is now depicted as a goat and part of the occult symbolism. Now, in Genesis 36, Seer has a daughter named Tina, who's a pure-blood Horim giant. Horim or Raphaim, as they're defined as giants, Raphaim in Deuteronomy 2, as you take that back to Hebrew. Tina marries Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the son of Esau. Esau is the brother of 
Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac, so these are the twin sons. Jacob takes all of the blessings, birthrights, and Messianic promise away from Esau. And now, two generations later, you have this marriage of the pure-blood Abrahamic line of Eliphaz with a pure-blood Horim bloodline. And it's this hybrid branch that's going to live amongst the Amalekim of Petra that is going to, Amalekim being the pure giants that are shown in Genesis 14 and clearly predate Genesis 36, when the Amalekite hybrid nation are created. It's the Amalekites who want to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. Right. As they come out of the Exodus at the Battle of Rephidim. And by doing so, by their legal right would regain all of those birthrights if they've done that. Now, good point you make. Didn't God instruct uh, King Saul, or was it David, to wipe out the Amalekites, and uh, and they left some alive? Uh, was God trying to destroy, even then, uh, some of this Nephilim offspring? And that why it was important well, to kill everything? Partially. Uh, certainly, they were always making that rival claim, just as the Midianites would through Ketur. Uh, Keturah, uh, consort of Abraham. Uh, but the Amalekites uh, were specifically always wanting to get those birthrights back. And so they it was like a, part of their DNA almost to have this blood oath. Okay. And there was a dynastic bloodline of the Agagite bloodline. So Agag was the one that talked about in the book of Numbers, you know, that, you know, is uh, looking at himself as in the terms of what Jesus would look at uh, at himself, and that's how powerful this Amalekite nation was, and how powerful this bloodline was, and it becomes a kingship title that you have a gag that shows up in the time of King Saul, and and Saul is ordered to wipe out the, the Amalekites from the face of the earth in just portions for what they tried to do to Israel for the crimes that the Amalekites did to Israel when they were just a ragtag nation of slaves coming oh, okay. out of Egypt. Yes. And but of course Saul doesn't do that completely. He actually keeps Saul, who is this tall and fair giant. And so Samuel is the one who kills the gag, but some of them survive and David does a mopping up uh, exercise once he takes power of the of the Amalekites. But that bloodline continues, and lo and behold, it shows up in the time of Daniel, and uh, with uh, Haman the Agagite, who was raised to be the most honored of the vassal kings and bloodlines around Darius's court. And what does he do? He tries to wipe Judah from the face of the earth while uh, they're in exile in Babylon. So Now, here's a question uh, that, for you, Gary. Um, I remember... Uh, God puts a, a um, an ordinance to the people that they're not to marry strange women. They're to marry of the tribes. And some would go out there and take strange wives. Of course, I would understand him not wanting you to do that if uh, if the wife you were taking was worshiping other gods and you know God didn't want you to be pulled over to worshiping other gods and idols. But do you think also God was trying to keep the children of Israel with a pure bloodline and not to intermingle because they could have potentially um, contaminated themselves with Nephilim DNA? Yeah, and, and, and in the book of Ezra, we're told that 
some of that has actually takes place, but it's against the law to do so. That they, um, you know, would have added that seed in, and it happens even at the royal family level. I mean, you know, David uh, he takes uh, a female from Gesher, oh. um, who's the daughter of Talmai. You know, Talmai sounds familiar. That's the patronymic title of kingships, part of the Anakim, that's part of the Geshering giants in the time of David. He named his daughter Maka, which again is a, both a matronymic and a patronymic name that is passed on, and you'll get giants of, of both uh, sides there. And he marries Maka in a treaty. It's part of the Syrian wars that he's doing against the Edomites. And he, ta- he, he takes them on, and they produce Absalom as a son. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, what is, and what does Absalom do? Rebellion. He tries to overthrow David, right? And Absalom, when he moves back to do his rebellion, where does he go? He goes to Hebron. Where's Hebron? Kiriath Arba. Oh, boy. The city of, the, of Talmai, Ahiman, and Sheshai. You know, the details are so important in the Old Testament if you sort of understand the connections. So again, that was a play by the the bloodline giants to try and get control of the Israelite throne. Well, i tell you something. And then to lead them into utter, utter destruction. It makes me look at the scriptures a whole new way now. I'm not going to complain anymore about the book of Numbers and where you've got all this genealogy because I think it's important uh, to know where you come from. Uh, that thereby you could spot some contamination, maybe by Nephilim. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, you're familiar with probably Ancestry.com. Uh, many people like myself like mm-hmm. to research our family history. There's another good one called FamilySearch.org. But I noticed a number of years ago, Gary, there's a big push for people uh, to send in their DNA samples and even more so now, and people are taking their blood sample, or, you know, the swab, rather, sending it in, and they're trying to further their their ancestry research with that. Uh, But I wonder if there's an ulterior motive. Why the collection of all the DNA worldwide? Could these offspring of the Nephilim be looking for some of their long-lost relatives? Is there a marker, again, as you mentioned, that the occult designates that maybe they're looking through all these samples sent in, looking for their cousins? What's going on here, do you think? Or, as maybe one of the James Bond movies came out with a few years ago, there was a weapon designed to take people out, and it was uh, targeting them through specific DNA. Um, that's kind of shocking, too. What's your take? Is, is this just kind of... Um, is there what do you think the motive is behind all the DNA right now tracking? Yeah, well, yeah, and uh, you know, if you have all of that knowledge with the technology, you could develop pestilences that could target, and we might see some of that down the road. But the first part of the question you're asking sort of gets to you know the motivation and is that what's really going on? So there's a significant amount of data being collected. So, you know, it starts with the genealogical trees, right? The yes. gene tree, um, a specific gene that they're looking for. That's, 
in the occult known as it's two aspects, one for their hierarchy structure and one for their genealogical tree, which in the genealogical tree would be an ash tree or an elm tree or an oak tree, symbolic in polytheism. That's The name they would provide for that is the Thelemic tree that goes back to the roots, to the godfathers in Sheol or Hades, where their heaven is and where their, they believe their godfathers live. The other one is the cedar tree, and again, the cedar tree of of uh, Mount Hermon that's described in, in 2 Amos um, or in, in Amos 2 I'm sorry and uh, that's used for their trunk organization hierarchy and their branches of their of their organizational structure of royal bloodline secret societies and lower secret societies and so they're collecting this knowledge because it's part of their end game they want to bring about the new Babel uh, where uh, you have a globalist government with one leader and a polytheist religion that is on, you know, ruling with them. It's the new Babylon is the Templar dream, uh, they labeled it, or the new Atlantis, uh, yes. as, uh, Rosicrucian Francis Bacon had named it, or the new age as we have, or you have this age where the mundane won't be accepted. Humans, won't be accepted unless it's just for sacrifice or for enslavement. And that's that millennial reign that, that they're promising. So they're, they want to be able to track who is mundane and who is not. And it's important for them in their belief system that if they want to evolve into godhood and, and be gods in the physical world, um, and they call it vibration or a harmonic convergence. You need to have a globalist government and a universal religion and to be able to track all of the genes that holds the spark of the divine, as they call it, and collect that so that you can have that harmonic convergence. But not won't be including Christians, let me tell you. And they call that in the occult the thousand points of light that the New World Order System wants to collect. Whoa. And it's all part of their essential belief system. And I've heard that saying before, you know, George Bush Sr., the thousand points of light speech. Uh, I'll just throw this yeah. into the conversation. Years ago, uh, I worked for the U.S. Army as a civilian up at uh, Alexandria, Virginia, and I got tired of my job after about six and a half years, wanted to do something else, and I said, well, I don't know. Before I leave and go back to public sector, I'm going to try for my dream job. Maybe I could become a 007 and get on with the CA. And so they were they were doing a hiring uh, campaign, and I went out with a whole room of other people to take this civil service test to get on ground floor with the CA. And um, it was a long test. I thought I probably felt it by the end of it. And what was interesting, though, is they bring out on this... Uh, cart, a, a TV with a VCR, and Gary, they put in a tape, and they said, we're going to show you a video, and we want you to write an essay on it. Uh, take a guess, Gary, what did the CIA show us group of people that day in there to get a job, a video of? Any idea? I have no idea. Giants, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> they showed us none other than George Bush Sr., yeah given the speech about oh. the thousand points of light. Now, I'm a yeah. Christian, and I knew the New World Order yeah. was real, 
And so I want to get a job. So I said, I'm just going to write something pro-New World Order. So I did. I extolled yep. the virtues yep. of the New World Order. And uh, I ended up getting to the next phase. Later on, uh, I fell out through the interview process and, and didn't get the job. It's, it's better yep. that I didn't get it or I wouldn't be here today. But I thought that was interesting that they were talking about it then. Yeah. That was like circa 94. Um, but back on target here. Um, we're live with Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. That's that's very uh, chilling when we consider that uh, there are people interested in knowing what's in your DNA. Um, I hear the term 13 families. Uh, did you come across this in your research as you're talking about these elite families that rule the world? Do you think it uh, can be called down to is there 13 families that really are at the top above um, what we may see out there in the news media like the Rothschilds? They're very wealthy. Um Bilderbergs, uh, some other families, but the real people that rule the world, are they mainly in the shadows? And uh, would these people certainly have some of that Nephilim DNA in them as we speak? Yeah, good question. So, and uh, George Jr. actually used a thousand points of light twice and including in uh, at the funeral of George Sr. So, um, yeah. So that's that's a common term, but when we look at the uh, the thirteen families, um, the thirteen families is possibly thirteen families that rule the world. But the one that most people would be familiar with are the two thirteen families that most people might be familiar with. One might be what they call the thirteen sort of pseudo blue bloods that are the lower of the bloodlines and typically would include a lot of American families like Carnegie and Rockefeller and um, Morgans and families like that who are trying to intermarry and were sponsored by the Rothschilds who are not part of the 13 families either and had married in. They used to be the Bauer family out of Germany before they were sponsored by um, the royal families and started the banking arm outside of the uh, Catholic Church and changed their name to Rothschilds when they set up the London Bank in the early 1800s. So there's a 13 families of Europe that is the most important ones in the West, but they're said, and it's hard to get documentation on this, but they're said to be part of a larger 13 family group of the world. So there's a lot of speculation on who the 13 families are in Europe, uh, but I put up uh, one list in, in the first book and it's based on um, some insider uh, listing of the names, but it, you could interchange some other names that you could make a good argument in there. But there's a lot of families. So when I talked about the polemic tree of the West, you would have the 13 families at the top of the Western bloodlines. And those would be different than what were in Russia. That was a separate bloodline or the dragon kings of the Shah dynasty spelled XIA that she is a member of the Western branch. That's a whole set of secret societies and bloodlines and there's bloodlines all over the world. So below the Western 13 families and what we see set up, he would have the 33 families or the council of 33. And below that you would have the, 
committee of 300 families based on a, a Greek uh, mythos of uh, 300 uh, bloodlines and families that come out of uh, Greek mythology. And below that are the Rosicrucians, and that's the intersection of the pure blood at the top half are the Rosicrucians, and then below you would have the ones rising from the lower trunk organizations of the Salomic tree. And below the Rosicrucians are the Illuminati and then the uh, Freemasonic organization at the bottom. So at the bottom level, as they're searching out people and bringing them back into the fold or teaching them the mysteries, then you can become an adept, first level adept, which on the old system is third degree. But on the Scottish right that was introduced in the U.S. in uh, the 1800s, it's that 11 is uh, that three is split 11 times to create the 33rd degree Scottish right as first level adept. And on the old system, if you're going to oversee Masonic lodges, you'd have to be fifth degree. So as a sort of a layman's term as a regional manager, you would have to be fifth, fifth degree to oversee those lodges. And you're learning more of the secrets as you move up. And Illuminati would dominate at the adept level of, of masonry and or actually utilizing the Masonic lodges to do their agenda. Every organization in the trunk has a specific agenda uh, as an umbrella group. So, for example, the Masons would look after, uh, would be dominating politics and the army. And the Illuminati, and I won't go through all of the agenda, but the Illuminati um, would dominate and focus on, on destroying Christianity and world government. So as you move up, then the latter you have the Rosicrucians, which are, are a higher level. I don't know how many on the old degree degrees that there are. I get varying information. I know there's at least uh, seven. Some people say nine or 13. Some people say there's a hundred or so, but those tend to be more splitting of those ancient degrees into more divisions. And all of these trunk organizations have branches that intersect and visualize uh, an ancient cedar tree that have all of these arms and they go downward. So up that hierarchy in that branch is a higher level of organization that would report into the trunk organization. So you mentioned the Bilderbergers are part of the, of the bloodline and they operate at the top level or the senior part of the order, just as you have the senior part of the Rosicrucians, they would operate that Bilderberger organization and it would branch into the committee of 300 and that uh, you would have a lower level, let's say like people like Bill Gates or the Clintons or other people that regularly attend those meetings and they get their marching orders every year. Also into the, the Committee of 300, you have the IMF that reports. You have the Davis crew that reports into there. So Klaus Schwab reports into the Committee of 300. Uh, the Club of Rome reports in there. So imagine all of these branch organizations that have their own branches and hierarchy that go around this tree. If you use a, if you use a pyramid system that might, might work within a specific organization, but it doesn't set a model where you have world organizations branching out all over the place. So I use the one that use the term that they use, which is the Thelemic tree. So where is, um, in the natural, I might think that Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, a group of about 300,000, excuse me, about 3,000 uh, officials, it varies, might be the, uh, the top organization 
working to do this great reset. Really, that's just a sub-organization, and uh, the puppet masters are probably much higher than them in the shadows. Yes. Would, would, would that be accurate? The invisible ones. Yes. Yes. They now, call themselves, the, in, in the visible world, the invisible ones working in the background, just as their invisible godfathers work in the background. Now, here's a question asked in the chat room. Uh, it said of the, the first generation giants, um, and I don't know for how long those characteristics may have remained, um, they could be identified as very tall individuals, six fingers, six toes. Um, if we saw someone today with six fingers and six toes, could that might be uh, an indicator there? They probably come from Nephilim bloodline or maybe not necessarily and there's a question too uh did the giants have double sets of teeth any other strange characteristics that you've come across in your research yeah so the uh, double rows of teeth that's quite common in um discoveries made in, in in north america as well with the six digits um we get the six digits that are mentioned in the bible uh, they seem to be a different variety of giant in many cases um, because they're just it's denoted both by Josephus and uh, the Bible as being different. They're the six fingered this these extra digited uh, giants are in the time of Goliath and uh, the other giants of the of the one giant. So there seems to be a genetic strain that would have another variety that's out there. Uh, so, yeah, they had, uh, uh, as I said earlier, they had these elongated skulls, and they would have looked like their, like their godfathers. So if you can imagine a cherubim watcher after their original creation um, taking one of their faces as they uh, procreate with human females, um, you might imagine that instead of having red hair or blonde hair and blue eyes and hazel eyes, they might have these black hair and these big bushy ones. So in the Aryans and the Syrian giants, you see this with Gilgamesh representing that. And he's larger than the Raphaim. In the Ugaritic texts, he is described as an if people don't know, there's a Ugaritic text version of the Sumerian versions of the of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we know Gilgamesh, as I mentioned earlier, is a post-Diluvian giant, sixth generation after the flood. He's described as being 11 cubits tall in all of these accounts and seven cubits wide. So he is, as the king, he's 19 feet tall, and he is uh, seven feet wide. So when I talk about stout, and you'll see that Ooh. word used for these types of giants, that doesn't mean chubby or fatty. It means bulked with muscle. So, yeah, they were, typically they were at a two-to-one height-to-width ratio um, versus the three-to-one of a human. And so if you look at Og's bed that was on display to show to future generations of Israelites, who they were fighting at the time of the conquest wars, Og's bed was nine cubits and 
it was uh, also for cubits wide. So it would be his bed would be seven feet wide. He was the king of Edra and Ashtaroth, so he is royal. He would be measured on a 21-inch scale, as Josephus recommends. And so his bed would have been seven feet wide and close to 16 feet tall. So he would not be as big, but he would be of the variety that would be either red hair or blonde hair and part of the Datanu that are recorded in the assembly of the Datanu in the Ugaritic text, just as the Horine are red-haired giants and pale-skinned, and I go through all of this in the second book, and the Amorites were sons of the Anakim, Amorites, blonde hair, blue-eyed, Anakim, blonde hair, blue-eyed, pale-skinned, so they did have specific traits, and that um, this height-to-width ratio is something that is just of two to one, and they had that bet on display to remind people is just something that is hard to imagine, uh, especially with, with, with their height. So the eyes glowing, it could light up a room with their eyes that glowed. So that would be another specific trait. Oh. Now, if you said, yeah, that's why they were called the shiny ones. <laughs> and so if you've seen that movie or the, the series uh, Stargate, and you have the Gaul where they have these serpentine little creatures that use the human body as their sort of avatar, they'd be the avatara, and their voices bellowed, that's what the giants said, they had voices that bellowed, and it would just terrify people with the sound, and they had eyes that glowed just as the ga- Gaul that glowed, and they show these this technology in that series where they could heal themselves in the sarcophagi, which is partly thought to be part of the angelic technology and somehow some way the Raphaim after the flood and one presumes the Nephilim even to a larger degree had the ability to repair themselves so they were called the healers in the Ugaritic text and that they could heal themselves and they could heal others and again that's the word RPM for Raphaim that shows up in the Bible and 7495 Hebrew is the root word for 7497 giant and 7496, which means demon spirit, shade, evil spirit, all rooted in 7495, which means heal uh, or medicine. And so you have this understanding that they, 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 they could repair themselves. So that's why you had to take the head of a giant so that you would lay in so much damage so quickly they couldn't repair themselves. So when David chooses five smooth stones for his slingshot and understanding Goliath has four other brothers and the Philistine Pentapolis the military complex has five kings reigning over that who answer to the Saranim which is the higher council of giants overseeing the Philistine Pentapolis empire Uh, you have David taking five smooth stones, he only needs one because that's all he's going to need to kill Goliath, but he doesn't leave him killed with a stone through the head. He takes Goliath's sword and takes his head. And David was preparing to kill all five giant kings that day if he had to. That's why he took the extra stones. And he would have beheaded all of them. In the Egyptian execration text, the royale said the worst death they could have is beheading. And that 
they would not have had time to learn the rituals and things that they needed to go to the other world or to Hades. So they would either go directly to the sides of the abyss or they would be roaming as devil spirits, which goes back to the Greek word demon in the, in the devil spirits that Jesus is dealing with versus Satan when he's called the devil. That's diablo, so a different word. Probably demon would be better translation than devil for those uh, demonic spirits that possess people. So they would become these disembodied spirits after their death. Humankind sleeps. We're told over and over and over in the Bible that we sleep and will only be resurrected in the the resurrection sequences that will take place in the end time with the last of the uh, resurrections that will happen with the second death. at the end of the millennium. So there are a lot of different distinct features, including these high cheekbones, right? Um, Which is why in Hollywood and models, they are looking for those high cheekbones. They're looking for certain features that they would view as being uh, representative of what was deemed as fair and fair is used in in the Bible to describe kings and, and, and things like that. Fair is in fair skin. Fair is in fairy, elven, alephine, dukes of Edom bloodlines. And uh, part of the whole fairy matriarchal bloodline aspect of the occult and the dragon bloodline is the patriarchal bloodline. Now, when you say dragon bloodline, are you referring to uh, Satan the dragon? Or uh, some kind of creature like we've seen with wings that breathes fire? Well, they would be uh, heavenly uh, dragons. They're the seraphim, six-winged, serpent-faced. They're the dragon creator gods. They're the same gods as the Nagas. They're the same gods as Quetzalcoatl, who's a plumed serpent, and or a feathered serpent. That's where you see seraphim show up in other um, pantheons around the world. Um, So, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't a physical dragon because you have the Nahash that uh, w- could have had many different kinds of, in, uh, of, of uh, sort of nuances within the species, yes. and all of that species lost their legs, lost their intelligence, lost their speech, um, uh, and are first to crawl on the ground for you know being part of the deception of the of the Adamites. So. Uh, I'm not saying there weren't physical dragons. There, there were. We just don't really have a record because they're killed off so early, right? As it relates to Satan, though, he's known as the Archangel. Was he a seraphim? He was more than that. He was. Uh, he has many titles and many names. And so, you know, in the book of uh, Enoch, he's called Gadrael. And that means wall of God, uh, just as uh, all angels' names tend to end in E-L. So Lucifer isn't his Hebrew name. That's an Italian word inserted in English language for a Hebrew word, which is Hael, H-E-Y-L-E-L. So that's probably the only biblical name that we're going to get, but he would have had several names and several titles. And he was so unique, he had forms of different ranks. So he's described as a devil um, in Revelation 12, but also as a serpent and a dragon, because again, in serpents, 
in, in ancient all of these serpents and dragons were considered the same. Now, this being a winged serpent or a winged angel, you would have the dragon serpent. So he was as a seraphim, in part, he worked before God at the altar as the high priest and had nine jewels to represent them. And the higher order that would be eventually inherited by Jesus through the Melchizedek order has 12 stones that were presented to the Levite priest. And so he's also called a cherubim in a Ezekiel 28. But this is a unique cherubim as the anointed one who walked amongst the fiery stones, which cherubim doesn't, don't do. They are the watchers around, and their wings cover the throne area. It's the seraphim that work within the altar, as they're shown in Isaiah 6. But this one does, which sort of goes to him. He's a trubum that has seraphim traits as well and was the high priest. And, uh, and he was an archangel because he's called the prince, Archon. So he was an archangel as well. We don't know how many different types of traits that he had and how many titles that he had, but as the greatest creation, he would have had multiple. But he was unique amongst angels and would almost been chimera-like with all of those different traits. Would he have been considered, did you say, it was he an archon also? Was that one of his names or types? Yeah. Archon? Um, yep, as his titles, yeah. There used to be a game back in the 80s on the Atari 8-bit. It was called Archon. It was like a, a take on chess, but with these creatures. I always wonder where they got the name from. Um, doesn't the Bible also <laughs> indicate that maybe he had like tabret, some type of musical device built into his chest? Yes, yes. Like an organ um, or something? So... What do you think? Yeah, so, yeah, flute uh, would be uh, one of the things, and, and harps and other things. Like, music was part of his whole his whole set of traits. Um, and we see some of that, you know, come down in some of the imagery, like with the Pied Piper, right? Or right. with uh, uh, the satyr gods with their flutes. And so... I'm not sure how that sort of splits, but it certainly is part of it. He seems to have had multiple musical interest, uh, instruments versus perhaps one that would have went with the, the seraphim, which may have been the flute. Now, we're live with Gary Wayne, author, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, if you're just joining us. Uh, Gary, let me fast forward in time. And uh, Jesus says, I saw Satan falling like lightning. We also have references to Satan as an accuser of the brethren. He must still have access to the throne room, uh, if that's the case, because he's accusing the brethren before God Almighty day and night. And then there's a time where he's cast down, and he knows his day, his time is short, so his wrath is kindled, and he makes war on the saints. Where do you think Satan is at this juncture? Do you think he still has access to the heavenlies and that time of being thrown down is uh, coming soon, uh, ushering in the tribulation, or do you think he's already down here at work? Where are yeah, we on I the think biblical he made a, time I, frame? Yeah, I, I think he's around. I think he made a plea deal to accept Satan's status, uh, to be sort of a sifter as we go through the time of the Adamites. And he is going to the abyss, and he is going to the lake of fire, but today yeah. he still rules this world. That's how he was able to offer all the worlds to Jesus when Jesus was here uh, in a physical body. And so he sits above the council of gods even to this day. 
because you know, he likes to be like God in his counterfeit realm, and he counterfeits everything. And so he would sit above the assembly on Mount Hermon, um, above the Balim, as we understand the Council of Gods in, 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 in the Bible. Now, and in, so he is... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. Yeah, so Satan is, is still pulling all of the strings in, in, in the background. And uh, people think that uh, uh, he has gone away or doesn't control everything. He sits above the hierarchy. There's a, a Saba that's still in control. So all the ones who went to the Abyss prison, both before and after the flood of the Nephilim or the angelic realm, they would have been replaced by ones who moved up afterwards. So just as Baal replaces El after the flood, because El also created giants, uh, before the flood, he's off to the abyss, and the whole Baalim take over after the flood, and then they disappear, which is why the Ugaritic texts are trying to bring them back because of their fertility issues. They want to produce more Raphaim, but they can't. Um, and so they can't come back, Baal and Ashtaroth, because they're in the abyss for the same crimes that their, that their parents did, but other ones have moved up and replaced them, and there's still the invisible ones that we fight with, and that hierarchy in that angelic realm and of the spirit's offspring that they created and of the visible ones who are still here ruling for them on earth so everything that we see on earth today is their oath-based system that began as, as the book of enoch talks about with the the curse of uh, the harem anathem the hebrew word haram their cursed curse their cursed curse to carry it out to the end no matter what the consequences were and they understood the consequences and so they would have done uh, sworn that oath before and after the flood the whole legal system the whole oath-based system goes back to that and the allegiance to that uh governing system that they have in place in this world. We swim uh, in, in an ocean of, of their empire, and they control everything. They control the government, they control the education, and they're going to continue to do so for a while um, as they try and bring about the end time before the ordained time. That's the only hope that they have. And so when you read in the book of Daniel that Antichrist is going to try and change the times that they're trying to do, it's the only hope that they can win on a legal account to continue to operate in this realm uh, ongoing. And uh, so if, if, if we want to understand what's going on today, we need to understand Satan is a, uh, a real figure, He's in control. He's the prince and god of this world, even to this day. And that when Jesus saw him fall from heaven in, in Luke ten eighteen, fall from heaven like lightning, that is describing that ancient rebellion that he tried to raise his throne up to heaven to be like God in Isaiah 14, and the same fall that Ezekiel 28 is talking about with this anointed cherubim who falls. It's the same individual. And that you're going to see the dragon, Satan, give all of his power, as Second Thessalonians and, and Revelation 13 talk about, to Antichrist in the end time. And he's going to be the avatar 
He's going to be the avatar to the avatara antichrist. So when people are being prepared on those terms, you can understand what they're what they're trying to to set up. Well, this brings up a very interesting uh, thought. Um, this antichrist will have be of the Nephilim bloodline. Am I correct? And some of uh, have said that King Charles III could be a candidate. You know, there's a book called The Antichrist and a Cup of Tea. Now, I didn't know if he was going to make it to king status or not. His mother lived forever. But if he's going to do something, then he's going to have to do it pretty quick. He's not getting any younger. Uh, Do you have any personal picks uh, for candidate for the Antichrist? And will will the Antichrist be of the Nephilim bloodline? Well, I think it's going to be of the bloodline because they believe it. They're going to present their antichrist from the bloodlines, whether or not that actually happens or it's the ones that we might talk about who are going to succeed. We we know this, that Jesus warned us that there'd be multiple antichrists, so we have to be careful. Okay. And the epistles of John tell us the same thing. So an antichrist is going to need a super antichrist figure to take credit for defeating if he's going to counterfeit everything Jesus does. So he's going to need a counterfeit Armageddon and a counterfeit antichrist. So we have to be uh, very discerning as as we move through. If we are in the fig tree generation, and I think that we that we are, that would be yes. my view, anyways. Yes. Uh, and we're still in the we're still in the uh, the sorrows. Uh, or birth pangs, as they're also described as. So when we look at Antichrist as being a bloodline, of, he's called the son of perdition, which is part of a series of words that Apollyon comes from. It's essentially an equivalent word to Apollyon. So son of perdition would sort of suggest that he's the son of Abaddon or Azazel. Uh, and because Azazel was the destroyer of the antediluvian world. And the one that is the leader of the abyss, uh, the uh, of the host of angels that went to the abyss in the book of Enoch. And so King Charles would be a significant contender for that, or his son would be a, a contender. Because we don't know how long a generation is. It could be 40 years, it could be 70 years, or it could be 120 years, as the Bible gives us examples. So we have to be careful in terms of where we are in the chronology as well. Uh, but there's another family name that's out there. And in, in my new book, I, I talk about this uh, a fair bit. Um, and they're called the Anjou. And they're an offshoot of the Bear family. And the Plantagenet that a lot of presidents take their bloodlines back to is, an off, is a junior offshoot of the Anjou. The Anjou have three separate claims to what they call the name is the King of Jerusalem title. So they're candidates. So you have a bloodline of Anjou out of Naples, which was the uh, Italian king that makes a claim. I won't go through all the details on how they make that claim, but I do lay it out in, in the new book. You have the von Habsburgs uh, who have a claim. And von Habsburg, he is you know a descendant of the Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty that this King of Jerusalem title passes down to, that they're making claim to. The current, seemingly more legitimate one that uh, that Queen Elizabeth held a chair on in the Golden Fleece Order of the Anjou, um, and one presumes King Charles would also have a seat in that same Royal Masonic Order as well as having their own. 
the, the senior garter order would be theirs. Knights of the Seraphim would be the Norse bloodline. So understand they have all of their own top level bloodline secret societies, Masonic Knight orders. Um, but the current older that seems to have the most legitimacy to the claim would be the Bourbon family of Spain, uh, who inherited. So that would be Juan Carlos, who received the King of Jerusalem title through the Habsburgs, and his son, King Philippe, currently holds it. Now, that's an important title to to the Anjou, because they, they received it in 1118, crowned as King of Jerusalem, wow. in a small priory on the Rock of Zion, with Baldwin II, and have continued to make that claim going ever forward because they have bloodlines that go back to the Merovingians who have bloodlines and genealogies back to the giants but also scion in the Benjamite title as well as the alleged Mary Magdalene and Jesus offspring through Josephes and through the Camelot dynasties and then Aragon Aminabad into the Merovingian dynasty but you have this claim of King Saul through Mary Magdalene and other bloodlines um, of, of fleeing Benjamites that they make claim to Jerusalem to, and that happened in the book of Exodus, not in the book of Exodus, in the time of the Exodus, in the wars of the giants that Joshua is undertaking, and he awards Jerusalem to the Benjamites. So they have all of these Scion bloodlines that connect them back, and they think that when the Antichrist is crowned in the temple, he will be crowned with their King of Jerusalem title. But there's also Antichrist around the world we'll have to be aware of. So expect an Antichrist figure out of China. You know, Putin may not be one, but he does make a claim to the Putinian bloodline of the Scythians, which are Indo-Aryans, post-Diluvian giants who set up the original Kiev czars, which is why Kiev is so important to them. This there are bloodlines all over the world that's going to be competing, but I think it's going to be somewhere wow. contained in with the, the old Roman and Greek empires in that geography where that bloodline comes from. I have just a couple more quick bonus questions for you, and uh, I want to thank... 90 seconds. Don't worry about that announcement. I want to thank uh, Gary for coming on and going into overtime with me. Uh, I will be merciful to you. I've been known to take people three to six hours, so I won't do that to you. Not this time. <laughs> um, Gary, here's a question. For years, people have been having these missing time episodes. They claim that they were visited by uh, gray grays, and uh, they've been taken into places and uh, 60 probed, seconds. Uh, sexually. Um not just a couple isolated instances. Hundreds of thousands of people have given these reports. Are they all nuts, or is there something to this? And uh, part two of that is, what's up with all these reports of UFO sightings? And, uh, you know, there's a term for it, uh, disclosure. Uh, could this be a signal that we may see a return of um, the watchers? Yeah, I think it is, and uh, we're going to see them walking amongst us again, as they did in the days of Noah. They may be described differently, um, but they will they will return. And that we also have the abyss that's open in the last seven years as well for all those Ten people. Ten seconds. That. That's so Revelation nine eleven. 
right? Yeah, Revelation 9, yeah. So, uh, and that's the, the ones that Azazel or Abad and Apollyon leads those ones out of. And then you have the war in heaven. So you have, and all the angels will be sent down for the last, fallen angels will be sent down to the earth for the last three and a half years. So there has to be some sort of way of explaining this, and that's where this whole alien mythos comes in. So we talked about angels as being shapeshifters before and can take any form. So they could create with the numerous angels not in the abyss all sorts of different kinds of fake aliens and technically angels are not of this world they're of the spirit world originally from heaven so they would be alien i suppose but they could create um quite a number of them because in the book of revelation and the book of daniel we're told ten thousand times ten thousand angels these are loyal ones are around the throne so that's at least 33 million or 50 million, depending on how you want to do the math on that, um, because a full third of them will have rebelled at least by the midpoint of the last seven years, as Revelation 12 tells us. So there's a lot of fallen angels, and uh, they also have their spirit's offspring that they've been protecting. So they have a hierarchy as well. And so they're going to be wanting to create bodies for the demonic disembodied spirits of the original Nephilim and Raphaim to come back and for the ones coming up out of the abyss with the fallen angels as well in the end time that's going to be part of that mix Whoa. you also have the elementals which are part of the spirit's offspring part of the occult hierarchy that are below the, uh, the Nephilim and the Raphaim giants and part of those types of creations that we're talking about, either through DNA manipulation or other types of copulation, uh, to create these creatures that they perhaps recreated again after the flood or saved if they were able to save on the earth, off the earth, in the earth, wherever, uh, some giants they could have saved, uh, these other offspring, or recreated them just as they, uh, as I think they recreated giants after the flood. Within this group are the little people, and they're called the elementals. And we get the, the word elementals in association with ruling of the earth in the New Testament. And these elementals are like the fairies, right? So again, you have that fairy allegory that's sort of overlaid on it. And there's three groups of these little ones. There's a fourth group that I'll get to in a second. Uh, of not little ones, but part of the elementals. Uh, you have the good-looking ones like a Tinkerbell would show up. You have the mischievous ones like leprechauns, and then you have ugly ones like dwarves and uh, gnomes and uh, trolls and ones like that. And they all, all of these subgroups of creatures have a specific role. Well, in the ugly group, you have the gnomes who looked after angelic technology uh, and also genealogies and knowledge, and they kept all of that. And there's one group that uh, is in the gnomes that have flying machines that come through portals, and most of the alien encounters seem to come through portals because it's just a standard of polytheism, just as the you know, gal Raphaim has over 100 domains. Domen is a word that means portal, D-O-L-M-E-N, you Google it, They'll show you a mini Stonehenge, just as Stonehenge is thought to be portals with those gates, with one slab over the top and two walls on the side. In the gnome mythos, the fairy elemental 
when they come through fairy domains or fairy portals with these flying machines and they've kidnapped people throughout the ages. And I put two descriptions of these fairy uh, gnomes in my book that if you didn't know it was a, a fairy abduction, you would swear it was a gray alien abduction. Wow. Where they're doing experimentations on human beings. They don't have a memory. It's identical. And these gnomes are called the greys and the grey neighbors specifically in Scotland. And so you have this, this, this whole hierarchy of these beings that are working through different dimensions uh, with fallen angels to help prepare for, for the end time and the deceptions that are coming. Now, the fourth one is called the salamanders. And these are the reptilians, and they tend to be associated within the earth, and they're taller than humans, um, but they are reptiles. And, of course, in the alien mythos, you have the reptilian part of it. And then the thing that's really connecting everything together here in the end time is that these aliens are called watchers, just as Nephilim were called watchers, just as the Anunnaki of the earth and the Anunnaki of heaven were called watchers in Sumeria, just as we get watchers in the Bible. So expect all of that to come together to be part of the great deception so that they convince us to take our table at the table of galactic species to fight against the evil lord of the universe, which is the god of the Bible, in their opinion, and very representative of those that series of movies, Doctor Strange, where you have this polytheist religion of magi uh, and depicted as the children of light, basically fighting against the evil lord of the universe, to win what? a treaty to keep the earth as that realm away from God and away from his oversight. And they want that. They want to create that world government and this ultimate rebellion against the God of the Bible in the end time and bring it about before the ordained time. They're going to fail, but they're going to keep doubling down until they can bring it about. You know, Gary, if Satan can kill a person before they receive Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, repent um, he'll take them to hell and um, he will. what do we see with um, the the globalists they want to get the world population down to 500 million it means they got to kill 7 billion of us and they can do, use a number yep. of means to try to hasten our death even bioweapons uh, wars but uh, yep. also if he can get people to take the mark of the beast that also damns them damns them for eternity it does so, yeah. you mentioned sure. in um, the uh, the excerpt here on Amazon, the Genesis 6 conspiracy marches toward the Great Tribulation with the loyalty of the terminal generation. This generation will be tested. Um, you know, one-third of the angels, I guess, went with Satan. They were disloyal to God. They fell. Um, is Satan going to try to pull that again in these last days? He wants mankind to give their loyalty and worship to him um, and he's going to yes. uh, try to hasten this in the time of the great tribulation what do you mean by terminal generation and uh, loyalty there well terminal nation is terminal generation is a term I coined out of uh, Hal Lindsey's uh, writings um, and so uh, I, I really love that because that's the, the generation that is coming to an end with the end of this age before we move on into the millennium 
and Satan is trying to exert complete legal rights over humans, or at least as many as he can get his hands on, and that we know he has legal rights to do that on individuals who swear oaths to them. And as I mentioned, we're in an oath-based order, and we ought not to be swearing oaths. You will be held accountable. You know, there's an incident in the book of Jude with Moses when he dies, and who shows up to claim the body? Satan does. Right. How does he have a right to claim the body? Well, Moses was adopted into the Pharaoh family and initiated from childhood into becoming a great adept at Heliopolis in an oath-based system where he would have sworn oaths to these pantheon of gods of the Egyptians, ultimately to, to Satan. And so even though he was there doing God's purposes and that he could come back and talk in their language and help him to free the Israelites after he had been exiled and converted over to being a follower of the true God, he still swore that oath and was being held accountable. And but for God sending Michael to trump that legal case, Satan would have had full right to take Moses. What do you think he and wanted And so with that's his body? what he's trying to do with the mark of the beast in the end time. So it's oh. going to come with an oath. Hmm. And that's it's right. going to come with a system that is going to change your DNA. It will be something that also crosses the line of, of unforgiveness, which is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so expect a duality to come back in terms of the mother god or mother goddess and god aspect of the Babylon religion and then whatever format Antichrist sets up at the midpoint. And that this beast system, which will introduce the mark of the beast will be able to go interdimensionally. So it ha will have quantum mechanics. It will have a cryptocurrency that can work with it. It will have AI. And you need AI and quantum to go interdimensionally. And we know there's, a, there's more than one dimension because the Bible tells us there's at least three. There's heaven, there's the earth, and there's the uh, Hades or Sheol. And that's where the heaven of the polytheist is, is in uh, Hades and Sheol. And that they want to introduce the divine essence, which will provide unlimited knowledge. The divine essence is the mother goddess. And this will provide the knowledge and the things at the quantum level to change things and make you immortal in the physical world so they can give you unlimited knowledge and they can give you immortality in the physical world. And that's done through access to the Atman particle, uh, which is an invisible particle that they're searching for that uses quantum entanglement that send all of this knowledge instantaneously through all dimensions and all universes at, at the same time. And that's the access to the knowledge. And it is also access through things like in yoga uh, and in... Um, drug-induced stages where you're inviting the spirit into you. So within that, you're inviting this mother goddess and worshiping a mother goddess as well. And along with that comes all of the sins that will be done by accepting the mark of a beast uh, uh, at the midpoint of the, of, of the last seven years. So that's the legal right he wants to completely sweep over and destroy all of those that they've deceived. They, they, don't, they don't care whether... Uh, 
you are killed or not. They just don't want you to believe in God. Absolutely. Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to drag every human being right into hell before we have an opportunity to repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. What a fascinating uh, interview tonight. And we've only scratched the surface. Folks, you've got to get the book. The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Gary, I know what I'm buying my family for Christmas, this and the upcoming one. Now, I want you to give out your contact information. Where do people go to follow your research and ministry? How do they order this book? And uh, give us some details on how they can order the upcoming book. So the best way to get a hold of me is through my website, which is the Genesis 6 Conspiracy.com. That's the number 6, Genesis6Conspiracy.com. And on the website, uh, I have on the second page where it says uh, contact Gary Wayne for an interview. That's my email address. It's genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com, again, with the number six. And you can contact me through that. It may take me a couple, three months to get back to you, but I will get back to you because I answer them all in order. So if you have a question, you, I'll answer your question. If you wanted more information, like I have a lot of documents I give away at no charge. So if you wanted one on how we know the sons of God are angels, how do we know they're not um, uh, humans, I have separate documents on that. Uh, you want uh, the hierarchical order, I have a document on that. Just name it by document. If I have a document on it and i got hundreds of documents, I'll send it to you at no charge. On the website is a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters so you can get a good feel for the book. I will have a generous excerpt. I'm just working on the pictures now and to get up on the website for the new book. So it will be available, and there will be a generous excerpt of all 84 chapters on that book as well. And you can buy directly from the website. So uh, you'll you just click over if you're in the U.S. I have a U.S. page. If you're in Canada, I have a Canada page. If you're overseas or anywhere else other than Canada in the U.S., uh, that's where you go to buy the book. And uh, that's where you get a signed copy. Now, if you wanted to buy from Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or barnesandnoble.com, I have links directly to those sites to buy the book. And if you wanted a digital version, I have the Kindle uh, connection on the buy page and the front as well to just click right over to the digital side. Uh, same will be available for the book I will have, for the new book. It will be sold off of the same website, and I'll have bundle uh, uh, pricing for that when it comes out. And I'm hoping to have the ability to pre-book in place by mid-September. But if you wanted to get a notification as to when the new book will come out and all the ways you can buy it, uh, then just shoot me an email at genesis6conspiracypart2 at gmail.com. You don't have to put anything on it. I will send you a note with all the information, and that's the, the only solicitation that you would receive from me at that time. Folks, get the book and also sign up for the alert and you want to get the sequel that's coming out imminently. Uh, you mentioned that um, you had put another book uh, on the back burner to finish this part two. Can you give us any idea of what the other book's going to be about? Yeah, it's uh, about the uh, the covenants, the holy covenants, uh, the ones before and after the flood that show up as the holy covenant with Israel. How, when those covenants are broken we have a different history so god is alpha omega so he knows how everything's going to go in 
he sees everything that's going to happen. So Israel had a choice to be have the future fulfilled through the blessings of the covenants or the curses of the covenants. And so we're experiencing the curses of the covenants. And they received the curses of the covenants with their various punishments and diaspora. They have not been forgotten. So the book is about that covenant and how they will be awakened, lost tribes of Israel, called by their name, and how they will rejoin Judah in the great second exodus of the last three and a half years and how they accept the Messiah in preparation for the Supper of the Lamb at Armageddon. Oh, man. That's going to be an equally great book. Any idea when you're coming out with that? Probably a couple of years, I think. Oh, no. Please, speed that one up. (laughs) I'll try. I'll try. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We may not have that much time. Uh, We're on the fast track here. I mean, look, it's already September. It almost feels like we're in the Super Bowl, the end times, coming up pretty quick. Um, Folks, what a fascinating topic. Get the book. We'll put a link up there. Please share this with every friend you can. Uh, I got one final bonus question. I'll let you go. Book of the Giants that was found over there in some of the scrolls, I think, in uh, Kuren. Have you ever looked at that and uh, any valuable information there? I have. I mean, I like the Book of the Giants. Um, it, it's not a large book. Um, it has some interesting sort of details, and I'm not sure whether or not you're talking about the Enochian Book of the Giants, but that's the one I'm referencing. Um, so, yeah, I like that. I think it, uh, it's, it's uh, consistent with First Enoch. There are other Book of Giants out there, like uh, the Lost Book of King Og, that uh, is kind of a merger of the Book of Giants and the Manichaean Book of Giants. Uh, interesting read. I uh, have to be careful with it, but uh, uh, still an interesting read. So, was that the book that you were you were think, referring to, the Enochian yes. Book of Giants? I think that was the one. Yeah. It was. Yeah, it was, I like. Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting on that one? It mentions Gilgamesh before the flood, whereas the Epic of Gilgamesh has Gilgamesh after the flood. One of the things to understand prehistory is understand offspring gods and parent gods. So let's say. Uh, as an example, Kronos is a parent god of Greece before the flood. Zeus takes over after the flood. You also have giants both before and after the flood, and a lot of the giants are named after giants after the flood that lived before the flood. If you understand that, you can understand some of the conflations and inconsistencies of the mythologies and break it down and see a better picture. My friend, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. What an honor to have you here tonight make time for us and uh, folks again we'll have this up quickly today I'll send you a copy Gary it's yours use any way you want and uh, when the second book comes out we would sure be honored to have you back and talk about that one too invite me back anytime it was a pleasure alright my friend God richly bless you oh one final thing if someone wants to support the research in addition to buying the books uh, do you have a, a way that people can support you like PayPal or any other method they want to contribute to your research? The only contributions I take is the purchases of my book or if I speak at a conference. Okay. So I thank, I thank people for the offer, but I'm trying to get information out, and I want to stay focused on that. Get the book, folks. You'll be blessed. We'll see you next time, Gary. God bless you, my friend. Thank you. Wow is all I can say. Amazing. Amazing. That was Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I only wish I'd had him on sooner.
Uh, but I'm so thankful to have this opportunity uh, to bring him on today, and we'll be bringing him back for more. You can guarantee that. Get the book if you haven't got it. Hard copy or Kindle available right now. Go to Genesis 6, the number 6, conspiracy.com. Did you all enjoy that? If so, write Gary and let him know. And we will certainly get him back for you. Well, that's going to conclude our broadcast for today. God richly bless all of you. And let me see what we've got coming up tomorrow. Okay, here we go. We're at the very, oh, we got one more day left. Tomorrow's Thursday in August. Okay, uh, David Measure's on tomorrow. Gary Stafford, I think a guest, and speak my word. And I'm already working on the month of September. So we're going to get that filled up for you. I'll get this posted. I'll put it up on OmegaManRadio.com. Go there for links to all the uh, locations that you can get these programs. They're free. Please share them with everybody you can. Help us get the word out. God richly bless all of you. Thank you for coming on today to join us. And we will see you next time in Jesus' name. Amen.